Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining the Great Anonymous Podcast. My name is Ahmed Hassan, and as always, we have a very special guest with me today. It's Brian Stern. Brian is the founder of Project Dynamo. We'll go into that a little bit later. Brian has 25 years of service focused on intelligence and special operations. He specializes in counterterrorism, counterproliferation, hostage rescue, personal recovery, critical technology protection, and unconventional warfare against near-peer threats, and great power competition targets. We talk about that a lot in the podcast. He's a Purple Heart recipient and credit being a military first responder at the World Trade Center on the morning of the 9-11 attacks, surviving both collapses. Brian, since then, has done a lot, and one of the things that we're going to go into about today is Project Dynamo. Brian, thanks so much for uh, being here. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. No worries. So what I wanted to ask you, can you go in a little bit about your career in the military and as much as you can say, and we can then go a little bit more into what you're doing right now? Yeah, I, uh, I joined the Army very young, uh, almost uh, right out of high school, and uh, wanted to. never really planned on, on making it a career. It was supposed to be, uh, you know, uh, life experience kind of a thing before 9-11. I'm a pre-9-11 guy. So uh, I joined the infantry and was pretty quickly recruited into Army intelligence. And then somewhere in the middle of all that, I found myself in the Navy as a Navy intelligence officer, although I've never really done anything with the Navy. Yeah, it's kind of weird. And I honestly, I don't know anything about the Navy. I'm a, I'm a terrible Navy guy. I, I've only worked on the land. So but uh, I was a 9-11 first responder. I was stationed in New York on the morning of 9-11. I was in both collapses. And then right after 9-11, like so many other people, got involved, uh, you know, started deploying all over the world, looking at um, terrorism targets. But I was always, uh, my career kind of took me on, on a weird path where the, you know, the, normal, the normal way, I didn't really do that. So I was always at the strategic level, even when I was, tactical it was for strategic purposes so uh you know even in my deployments in afghanistan it was very centered on on all kinds of things that had nothing to do with the taliban or Haqqani or the, the 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 typical afghanistan mission set in 2011 i was a task force commander a task force 71 commander or officer in charge i should say uh on the ground in afghanistan and we looked at all kinds of things that had nothing to do with Afghanistan, honestly. We looked uh, to the east, to the west, looking at Russian problem sets inside Afghanistan, Chinese problem sets inside Afghanistan, Al-Qaeda senior leadership, of course. But my career has always been, my career has always been, you know, hard, hard targets, wherever that may be. I've worked in like 60-something countries all over the place, Africa, Europe, Middle East, a little bit of Asia too, but not so much. And... um I've had the privilege of working with the most elite units and agencies in the U.S. arsenal, units that sometimes don't even have names that I can't get into. Uh, but I've been really blessed to to have this really atypical, unconventional kind of career where um, I, you know, honestly never really fit in, to be honest. And I was always I always struggled in my career, even from a leadership perspective, but I always struggled in my career trying to do the regular thing, if that makes sense. So whenever whenever you surround me with other big troop formations or big headquarters, even in the special operations world, I always kind of struggled with that stuff. I was always really good at being, you know, you know, this group tried, this group tried, this agency tried. We have this problem that we need to get solved. Everyone's tried, 
you know, you want to take a crack at it kind of a thing, if that makes sense. So it's always been weird. Uh, very, very little of my career has been, has fit into a little box, which fast forward to Project Dynamo is exactly uh, what we are. I mean, that that's it. We operate where there's, where there's no U.S. government presence, where there's little to no resources, absolutely no backup, surrounded by counterintelligence threats that may or may not be realized with no mommies, no daddies, and no net. That's very in line with the last 25 years of my career. So it's kind of funny how how it kind of all trended that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you talked about Afghanistan. I think it's very important also to note that when we were talking about Afghanistan in the last 25 years, that really the near peer, like China and, and Russia, were not really in the, in the conversation. I think only during the Trump presidency, we saw like mentions of, of China and and uh, and Russia. What what do you think that is? Um, I I think that's true to a very large degree, but also I would disagree a little bit. I worked Russian I worked Russian issues from Afghanistan in 2011. It just wasn't a high enough priority. Guys like me always like like I never really believed in the whack a mole. Let's kill as many Taliban guys as we can. I didn't. I never believed that to have strategic value. And fast forward 20 years later, actual impact on the Taliban is zero. They're they're right back in power and on, you know, they're they're largely unimpacted. So I, I agree that it, I agree that China and Russia and to a lesser extent, Iran were not the top priorities. But to say that they weren't looked at at all, I don't know if that's so accurate. It just that's not where the funding went. That's not where the priorities went. But but I'll tell you, there were there were plenty of plenty of plenty of operations and cases where Russia and China were the centerpiece at a very, 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 very high level of government through, uh, certainly through the Obama years, definitely through the Trump years, and as we're seeing now in the, in the Biden years. So it, it's a priorities issue much more than a, we, I don't think it's accurate to say that we didn't, didn't do anything with it. It just became a, yeah. a lower run. I would like to rephrase. Yeah. So I think there's a, a misunderstanding there. What I mean is from the wider community and, and, uh, and, and news, and it was not really paid attention from that perspective. It was not as quote unquote sexy a topic. It, exactly right. It definitely wasn't sexy. You know, when I, you know, again, just to, to talk about Afghanistan, when I was looking at Chinese intelligence officers running around Kabul, most people kind of said that's kind of silly and my response to that and people like me would say we're a strategic asset we're here to do strategic targets and the taliban is not a strategic asset or a strategic issue so uh you got a lot of funny looks until we were able to draw a nexus between russia china or other great power threats and the taliban so being able to explain that haqqani network is deeply invested in the china in chinese business and that chinese business and haqqani are are mutually beneficial being able to tie that together was really the art during those years to to be able to do some of these operations and you know one of the one of the things that i always talked about when we talk about the global war on terrorism you know gwat is like the cover name or doing business as the rise of china right so yeah but um but even globally can you go into that a little bit more i think that's interesting yeah what you said there. yeah i mean at the strategic level, strategic strate at the strategic level, the U.S. being a strategic competitor of China and China being a strategic competitor of the United States, 
our our job to them is to keep their hands busy and atrophy them and deny them access or make them spin their wheels or over invest in something stupid or what have you. That's that's how you prevent. That's how you mitigate threat to some degree at the strategic level is 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 keeping your enemy's hands busy with other other things other things. We the United States got very 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 myopic in the terrorism world based on 9-11. So it wasn't for a wrong reason. And in the world of finite resources, you can't, you can't go after everything and you can't do everything. So it becomes a priorities issue. But, but the amount, you know, the billions and billions and billions and billions or trillions of dollars spent in the war in Afghanistan, where, where we, where we designed and developed tremendous capacity, tremendous capacity to hunt people. That capability was not exactly there on the morning of 9-11, the, 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 the capability that America has to, to globally hunt what we say F3EA, find, fix, finish individuals is now unmatched. The problem is at the strategic level, it's not about the one Chinese colonel. It's about the whole Chinese brigade or a whole Chinese fleet. So that ability to hunt at the individual level, which we did not have before now doesn't really help us when we talk about things like China to some degree, a little bit and our intelligence capacity and our, and our data analytics and, and machine learning capability and, and uh, quantum data and all these other big issues that we use in the war on terrorism certainly are beneficial in a very real way to great power competition. But while we were dumping billions of dollars into how to read individual people's mail and minds, while we're doing that, the Chinese you know, on a larger scale is able to grow their capability, grow their capacity, build at the at the from a domestic perspective, build a real national identity, right? Americans, your average American on the street doesn't identify themselves as a defend, you know, as a as a counterterrorism defender or anything. That didn't happen in China. Everyone is really, 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 really excited for the Chinese Communist Party to invade Taiwan. Everyone's really, it's, they're united in purpose. We were united in purpose for hunting Osama bin Laden, revenge of 9-11, uh, dismantling terrorist networks sounded cool, daring raids by special operations that made good, good movies and stuff. And we were really focused on wounded veterans that got hurt. That became a, that still is a, a major focal point for the American population. Uh, you know, an American stubs their toe, it's headline news. And we're very quick to pile on and, and help our veteran community. Well, that actually has nothing to do with the war in China whatsoever. Absolutely nothing. There's no relevance there. It sounds good and it feels good, but when it comes to a nose-to-nose, -nose, you know, knife fight between the United States Navy and the Chinese Navy, all that wonderful good things actually has nothing to do with that conversation whatsoever. And I think the the byproduct of 20 years of that you know, is significant. You got to remember if you, if you graduated the farm or, or you were graduating buds seal school or, or the Q course, the, 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 the schoolhouse for green berets as tower two was collapsing, you're already retired for an entire career's worth of time. Oh, 20 years, you know, you join, you join and then you do get your 20 year later letter and you retire after 20 years, literally, a career's worth of time was spent not focusing on 
all these things. So it begs the question, and I deal with this all the time, from a great power competition perspective, if we have all these wonderful operations and all this wonderful stuff and this really big capability and capacity that for 20 years, a career's length worth of time, now we're going to pivot, okay, and according to the national defense strategy and current threat, no problem, who's training the next generation? Show me a Navy SEAL on active duty that has dealt with cruise missiles. We don't have it. We don't have it. Show me a Green Beret that's ever had to really worry about enemy aircraft, for real, in a combat environment. We don't have it. So that leads into, well, we got to train the force. Okay, we, there was a time where we didn't know anything about terrorism either. Okay, no problem. Who's training the next generation? Because we have a career's worth of people that are not trained for it and have no experience in it. So then that leaves people pre-9-11. Well, those guys are in their 90s and 80s. And if you talk to them about artificial intelligence and Instagram and Facebook and messaging and all those issues, there's this huge gap. So we have people, we have people that know how to do unconventional warfare in denied areas. We do. We have people that are really good at this. The problem is they're either four-star generals and admirals, and they've been out of the game a really, really, really long time. Or they're in their 80s and 90s and aren't exactly combat effective, generally speaking. So that, that new pivot is going to be a challenge for, for, uh, for the U.S. and the special operations community. That's the biggest, in my mind, that is the, 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 the two biggest negative byproducts of 20 years of the war on terrorism is China was allowed to increase in capability and outpace us in many areas. And we did not invest in our own capability to develop the next to, to develop the next generation to deal with this problem right just like the the original guys that went into afghanistan in 2001 none of those guys had terrorism experience not a single one the the, the original guys they didn't know they figured it out but in today's world right figuring it out against al-qaeda and the taliban where we have overwhelming superiority in so many areas we're gapped in a lot of areas, but we're able to make up for that with air power and other things. When you say that with great power competition, how do we plan on mitigating that? How are we going to close that gap? That's a real problem. And that's, I think, one of the, 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 the absolute biggest challenge that we have with great power competition is, is who's training the, the current generation and the next generation and who is experienced doing this. We don't have it. And because we don't have experience, we're going to make decisions probably in a vacuum that we're, will probably not be accurate and that'll cost lives and possibly, possibly even um, has, the, has the risk potential of, uh, of either starting a war or at least not preventing a war. What, what would you say to people that, that say, well, the Chinese have no real combat experience either? Is that valid? Because they, they, they might not have it, but... They have not been fighting terrorists, and, and that's not who they would be fighting. I mean, number one, I, th I, I do think that's valid, but it's kind of, t I, I think people who say that are, are misrepresentative a little bit, meaning, yes, China does not know how to project force and invade Brazil. If China wanted to invade Brazil, that would be a big challenge for them. The catch is, though, is they don't really need to project force for Taiwan. They, you can fly... You can fly from Fujian province to Taipei and back on one tank of gas in a Chinese fighter plane. So the, 
you know, it's a true statement where they don't have a lot of combat experience. Got it. They do practice a lot. They do rehearse a lot, but it's not the same thing. I agree with that. But also in the world of great power competition, where you're talking about 2 million men, you know, 1 million, you know, hundreds of ships and all that stuff, they're able to, to cover that gap. Oh yeah, by the way, it's in their backyard, right? And we see this with Ukraine and Russia. It's in their backyard. They do not have a cultural issue that they have to learn. They don't have a language barrier to overcome. They don't even have a food problem that they have to overcome. They don't even have a supply chain issue that they have to overcome. So a lot of the things that where you need to rely on experience to deal with obstacles and problems, that's why that experience is so important. A lot of those obstacles are not even present. So it'll be a challenge. I don't think China is going to be able to walk into Taiwan unmolested and, and it'll be a, a walk in the park. But at the same time, the issues that the West always has to deal with, be, because we always project force, we, we don't have wars in North America. We're always taking our fight somewhere else. Chinese really don't have that problem. They really don't have that problem. And from a legal perspective, which is where I think the China-Taiwan issue becomes completely fascinating, it's an issue that not many people are really considering. If we look to Ru the Russia invasion of Ukraine as a great power threat, right? Certainly Russia is a great power threat, right? Big world war, Europe, you know, Europe, Asia, you know, we've seen this movie before in World War II, right? A sovereign country called Russia with the seat at the United Nations Security Council invaded a sovereign country called Ukraine with full diplomatic recognition. There's doesn't there's over over uh, I think there's 70 embassies inside Ukraine. Ukraine is a real country with a real currency, with a real diplomatic presence, a, a signer of the Vienna Conventions. They are truly sovereign. Taiwan is not that. Taiwan does not have a seat at the United Nations. There is no U.S. embassy Taipei. It doesn't exist. So it's a tough argument to make that we're going to defend Taiwan from China because from the international law perspective, frankly, Taiwan doesn't have any claim whatsoever. If it did, we probably should have recognized its sovereignty before now. And now that's not going to work. So, you know, imagine if Cuba said, we are going to liberate Puerto Rico because Puerto Ricans speak our language, they eat our food, we look alike, we sound alike, we talk alike, and we think alike, and culturally we're pretty similar but not the same. We would say, how dare you? You have no claim to, to, to Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico belongs to us. There's no Puerto Rican embassy. Puerto Rico is part of the United States. Well, that's very much how the Chinese think about it, and from an international law perspective, they're 100% right. So I think we're in a tough spot. I think we're in a tough spot with respect to China-Taiwan issues because it's a pretty pretty tough sell to explain that that we need to defend Taiwan from anyone. I think that's a really, I don't know how that works out. And that's, again, that's an indicator of 20 years of looking the wrong direction. Sometime in the last 20 years, we probably should have said, Taiwan is mission critical to the national security of the United States because of semiconductors and the rest. And China is a bit, is a, is a hostile, uh, hostile country, which we know they hate us. We hate them. That's not news. Sometime in the last 20 years, we could have done any number of things to deter, thwart, convince, importune, nibble by nibble, 
Now, the war in Afghanistan's over, and now we're saying, oh, wait a minute, this Taiwan thing is kind of a really big deal. Now what do we do? And anything that we do, anything, any overt act and furtherance that we do can legitimately be called an act of war, which is a real problem. It's a real problem. Because now we're violating Chinese sovereignty. That doesn't sound good. That doesn't sound good. Yeah. And, and how do you convince the American people that this is something to rally for? Exactly right. Exactly. You know, I, what, what, why, why, why does my sister care about Taiwan? Right. My, my, my sister barely, my sister, 20 years of war, barely, my sister can't find Afghanistan on a map. So if she didn't care about Afghanistan, which, which vis-a-vis killed New Yorkers on the morning of 9-11, and that was an easy sell in the beginning, but 20 years later is a really tough sell. 20 years is a long time. How do we convince people of, of China, Taiwan, other than media and propaganda and the rest? Or some sort of act, some sort of hostile act that that uh, everyone feels. And I don't think that that's out of the question whatsoever. I think we've seen that movie before, too. Yeah. So I want to circle back to uh, Afghanistan and, and you, you've been working there for a long time and your experience and then pullout happens. And how do you look at that and, and how did it influence what you're doing right now with Project Dynamo. So we, so Dynamo started as a result of the withdrawal of Afghanistan. I was watching it on TV like everybody was. I was getting calls from people, friends of mine inside Afghanistan asking for help. I was, uh, Dynamo didn't exist yet, right? And I thought, um, I thought that I could help a little bit. And I never intended two years later to still be working on this. Dynamo was supposed to be around for two weeks or three weeks. It was never meant to be this so the withdrawal, when I, when I started Dynamo, the idea, and, and Dynamo is different from many other groups insofar as we actually do the operations ourselves. We're on the street. I have an Afghan visa in my passport as I talk to you now. Um, we, we, we were, you know, I tell everybody, if you have a safe house and you have not used the plumbing in your safe house, you don't have a safe house. From a tradecraft perspective, if you know a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy, that's that's a violation of of every ounce of tradecraft that I know to be true. So when I started Dynamo, it was based on the idea of watching it on TV and it not going well and getting angry, frankly, right? Uh, I wanted to help. I wanted to help. And then one day I saw the C-17 at Kabul, uh, at Kaya, at Kabul Airport and I saw the Afghans fall from the landing gear. And the last time that the last time I saw that was the morning of 9-11. And it occurred to me, we got to remember, if we go back, that was the that was August, I think, 17th, 2021. At that moment, live on when it was live on TV, I was working on my speech for the 20th anniversary of 9-11, which was only three weeks later. August 2021, when the evacuation happened, was within three weeks of the 20th anniversary of 9-11, which is in the world of geopolitics, tying this to 9-11 is dumb, right? Why would we tie anything of ours to a great victory of the enemy? That's dumb, right? That that doesn't make sense, right? So when I saw that, I got angry and I said, this is what we're going to do. I called up some friends. We're going to go overseas. We're going to break open the North. I have friends in Northern Afghanistan and everybody was target fixed on Kabul. 
the State Department and DOD and the White House and everyone smartly telegraphed and said that that, you know, August 30th is the last day of Americans in Afghanistan. In my mind, it was while that irritated me to a large degree for a lot of reasons. Bottom line, though, is is now I have a date of when I know whoever's left is in deep trouble. If the military is leaving on August 30th, in my mind, it was what are we doing on September 1st? Let's let's help where we can between now and August 30th. But this real problem starts on September 1st because it was clear and obvious that people were going to get left behind. It was obvious. It was clearly not well organized, clearly poorly planned, if planned at all. All kinds of things that should never have happened, happened. Violations of non-combatant evacuation operations procedures, systemic. So clearly it was, it was obvious to me that, that, that people would be left behind and it wasn't going to go well. That was obvious. So my idea was we invaded through the north. That's how we're going to leave. While everyone is focused on, while everyone's focused on Kabul, we'll go up to the, we'll go up north to Uzbekistan and break open Mazar and bring people out that way. That's exactly what we did. I never thought that we'd be rescuing Americans out of Afghanistan. When we went over in the beginning, it was to help our allies and our partners, our sources, commandos, judges, women's rights uh, folks, all of those kinds of people. I, I never occurred to me that we would be rescuing Americans ever, ever, ever. And here we are. How many people were you guys able to get out? And how, how long were you there? Are you still doing it? So we, in August, we went to Uzbekistan. In August, 2021, uh, we forward deployed. I started Dynamo and we forward deployed to Uzbekistan. And we already had infrastructure on the ground in Afghanistan due to our, with our networks and friends and allies and associates and sources over 20 years. We did a lot of cross-border stuff at that time. And it was really, at, at the time it was, if you can get, you're trying to get people to the gates in Kabul was priority number one, get people out, which is what a lot of people did. And then priority number two was start building infrastructure all over the place for September 1st and beyond, right? We went into it thinking about September 1st, trying to do, trying to help out where we could, but really our focus was what happens when everyone leaves, because that's when things get really complicated. So from there, we went to Tajikistan and we went to some other places. We did, we got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people see the gates in Kabul. We did uh, a number of operations via land into Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Pakistan, and a couple of other places. Uh, we call those nomad operations, nomad, which are still in effect to this day, two years later. And then what happens is the military leaves. General Donahue is the last, last man in Afghanistan, last American in Afghanistan. He leaves. And from the Dynamo perspective, we wondered how real was it that we're not going to do more? Meaning just because they establish a deadline doesn't mean that it's real, you know, you know, let's see what it is. At the same time, we started hearing about right up until the end, right up until the military left, we were getting all kinds of people asking us for help with American passports and American green cards. LPRs. And, and I'll tell you, when we were planning, when we were planning and setting things up, we had actually had a conversation about who are we getting out? What is our standard for an evacuation? You know, there was a very 
notorious NDS general that's a friend of mine who shall remain nameless. And uh, his words to me, you can't rescue the whole country. You know, you, you can't. So, and, and that's true. We're, we're, we're highly donor funded, right? ProjectDynamo.org. If you're listening to this, please go there and donate because we're still working. But we had, we, had a, we had real discussions about what is the threshold. And we had a discussion about American citizens. And we collectively agreed that we shouldn't focus our time there because the American citizens left behind, JSOC, whoever, agency, someone will come in and take care of those ones. That's not for us. Well, that'll, that's not even a consideration. And when we built our initial data sets and our initial data points and our original portals and all the original stuff, we made a conscious decision to not think about Americans because it was not our problem. U.S. government is resourced for that. Very quickly, we learned that we were dead wrong. Dead wrong. Uh, General Hobson, who's the Secretary of Defense, and Secretary of State Blinken got on TV on September, I want to say 15th or so, 14th or so, and said there's about 100 Americans left in Afghanistan and we're tracking all of them, right? Well, joke's on them because two or three days after they made that statement, we landed 117 Americans that were left behind in Chicago, Kabul to Konas. So then I start the discussion of what's the likelihood, statistically, that Project Dynamo, which at that moment four weeks old, five weeks old. We didn't even have a website. What's the likelihood that we have 100% or more of the sample, the market share of Americans left behind that we know about more Americans than the State Department, Department of Defense? What's the likelihood of that? Probably zero, right? Well, again, again, we were wrong. Since then, we've rescued hundreds and hundreds of these hundreds of Americans and green card holders that were left behind from Afghanistan. And still are risking people that have been trying to get out almost two years later. Still. It's one of those like, you know, Don Rumsfeld isms, you know, unknown unknowns, you know. We we had we had a known no. We knew Americans were stuck. And we made the decision that based on precedence, that this is not our problem, that SEALs will come or Green Marines will come or agency will come or whoever it is will come. And, you know, maybe they're going to, maybe they're going to, you know, stiff our allies and our friends and all those, which is terrible. But they're, what they're never going to do is leave American. And boy, were we wrong. We were, we were dead wrong. So since then, in, uh, in September, we did an operation called Slingshot. And what Slingshot was, was the first charter plane to rescue American citizens under Taliban rule. Lots of people had figured out ways to land airplanes. Nobody figured out how to take off. And that's what we did. We figured out a way to land in Kabul legally. We did not break. Dynamo never breaks laws. It's a violation of tradecraft to break laws. We don't do that. Just like when I'm running a route in a car, I drive the speed limit. I don't drive fast. I don't want to give the bad guys a reason to hurt me, arrest me, or interrogate me. So I follow all the rules. And uh, it was wild. It was, it was uh, complicated. And it's one of the largest private rescues of American citizens in U.S. history, which is... When that happened in September 2021, I truly believe that would be the most prolific thing that Dynamo ever did. In hindsight, <laughs> on, the, on the spectrum of crazy, but it actually, compared to some of the other things we've done, 
was not actually not the time. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, that's what I want to hear about. So Afghanistan starts, you guys do a lot of work there. And then where do you go from there? So we were working in Afghanistan from August, 2021. And Dynamo is one of these organizations that I, I've actually tried to turn us off uh, two times for real and almost a third time where, you know, get back to real life, right? Just, I, I had a really successful business. I was, uh, I was out of government, out of the whole get shot at for a living game. I was, I was, I was done and done and done. So uh, we did a major operation in December, 2021. We went back to Kabul, landed another big airplane, took out 49 or 50 something Americans from Kabul. And it was, it was actually a wild trip because, you know, by now the Taliban had been, now they're in power for months already. They're there. You know, we were doing things all over the place, but it was our first time back in country. And, you know, we went to, we went to, we went to U.S. Embassy Kabul, which is now covered in Taliban propaganda, right? At the airport, Taliban flags everywhere, everywhere. Uh, the Taliban, are, they're the boss, whether I like it or not. So it's kind of prolific. We did that big operation. And there was a definite decrease in demand, onesies and twosies, and we still have onesies and twosies, but there was a definite, definite downswing in people asking for help that we were able to help. That gets us to December. Then we do Christmas and New Year's and the holidays. And my big idea was start to wind things down a little bit. Well, we'll do some stuff, but I don't need to be in, this, I don't need to be in the field anymore. Let's keep it going, kind of, and see what happens, but surely it'll be okay, right? And it's definitely gotten better. Airport got opened up again, some of those things. Right around, right after New Year's, this guy named Vladimir Putin starts amassing troops on the border of Ukraine. And we had, a, we had a donor who was very good to us and generous, who came to me and said, hey, Brian, I gave you money for Afghanistan because you're rescuing Americans. And I respect you and I respect the mission. He says, but the reality is, I don't know any Afghans. I'm never going to know any Afghans. I'm not going to Afghanistan. I've never been to Afghanistan. Honestly, I frankly, don't really care about Afghanistan or Afghans, honestly, but you were doing the right thing. So I gave you money. But I'm actually, he says, used to have a business in Kiev. In fact, I have lots of girlfriends still in Ukraine and I have a lot of friends in Ukraine and I love Ukraine. Is Dynamo going to Ukraine? And at this moment, there was a lot of debate whether or not, whether or not Russia was going to cross the border or not. All kinds of people who are self-proclaimed geniuses and all kinds of opinions. These are the same people, if you remember from our first segment, who have been doing Afghanistan for 20 years, right? So I'm a, you know, I'm a Green Beret and I've been to Afghanistan 15 times and I killed 10,000 Taliban. Let me tell you what I know about, about why Russia's going to invade Ukraine. Well, those are all, <laughs> from my perspective, that's, per that's pretty funny, right? So I gained the game. So I, I told my daughter, I said, we're an Afghanistan outfit. We're, we're here for the, our Afghan allies that got left behind, that fought with us and died with us, and for Americans left behind in Afghanistan. You know, I don't, I, don't think, I don't think so. We're not a global organization. We actually, actually happen to have it right here. Our original logo, our original patch, is the map of Afghanistan. Right? Right? In, in, in Dari, right? Uh, Project Dynamo. So I'm like, even our logo, about Afghanistan. I don't think so. Well, I went out with some friends and we went out for a couple of drinks and cigars and stuff and we talked about it. 
we talked about doesn't make sense. What should we do? What shouldn't we do? And it occurred to me, I had this moment of reflection of we were tremendously successful, more than most, I would argue, more than everybody in Afghanistan. And But that was at the tail end of a dumpster fire, right? It was a mess. Imagine, imagine how successful we could be if we started this the right way. Dynamo was started in the middle of an evacuation, changing the tire, driving down the street. Imagine, and I, I thought about it like Noah's Ark. Noah built the ark before the rain came. It was before the rain is when he started building. And that's kind of the model that we took. So I went to my daughter and said, hey, look, if you fund it, if you fund some of our travel, we'll deploy forward and we'll set stuff up. Worst case, it's for nothing. Worst case, it's Ukraine is cool. It's a lot of fun, beautiful country, good people, really good food. And at this moment, safe. So there's, yeah, I, when I first went to Ukraine in January, I flew into Kiev. The airport was open, right? <laughs> there wasn't a single sandbag in the whole country. So we, that's what we did. We deployed forward. I looked at the map and I, I, you know, the war in Ukraine, Ukraine's a huge country, huge. It's the second largest country in Europe after Russia. It's a huge place, a lot of terrain. I looked at the map and I said, the East is a mess from a counterintelligence perspective. Who knows what you can trust? Who knows? It's, it's culturally so much more closer to Russia than anywhere than the Soviet mindset. But the South, if, Putin invades, he's going to want places like Zaporizhia because that's where the nuclear power plant is. He's going to want places like Prevorin because that's where industry is. He's going to want places like Kherson because that's where water is on the river. He's going to want places like uh, Mariupol because of industry. So I, I took the map and I said, well, the East is going to be a mess and I can't do it all. Let's focus on the South. So for a month, we built infrastructure, human infrastructure and physical infrastructure all through the South, all over the place, all kinds of things, not knowing if the war was even going to start. I bet that it would. I bet that it would, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe. But without understanding, it was, it's actually fascinating. We built all kinds of stuff, not knowing what the threat actually would be. Are our comms going to get, is, is the first, is this first act of greatness going to be turn off all the lights, turn off the power grid and bomb it? Well, it turns out that's how we were really afraid of that. I, I walked around with a core battery sized battery pack thing with a solar panel for like three months and it was for nothing. So we, you know, it was fascinating from a planning perspective, planning for a war without knowing what it will be or if it will happen. But if it does, where will it be? How will it be? What, what will the, uh, you know, what does that look like? And then all these issues. Well, jokes on everybody, the war starts. Missiles land. I was in Kiev. We knew it was coming, right? It's undisputed. And even then, people were debating the point. We were, based off our intelligence and our sources, we, we knew it was coming, 100%. Uh, I was on TV. I think I was on our Newsmax or, or something. And I called, I, I predicted February 23rd, 24th, or 25th before breakfast. It'll be a before breakfast hit on those three days. And sure enough, 5.30 in the morning, February 24th, Missiles come raining down the country and hit Kiev at right, right around 5.30. By the time this happened, we have already pre-selected safe sites. I've pre-selected -pre rally points. We're in contact with Americans. 
all over the country that are that are going to be stuck. All kinds of stuff. So missiles land. Literally, our our hotel shook. Right, war has started. With a text message, we initiate operations. So, from a rescue perspective, it's all about contact and authentication of your evacuee, right? And then setting and then setting conditions and getting them to the rally points you need them to do, right? With the push of a button, we initiate operations. We're already ready to go. They come to me, right? Myself and one of my primary primary sources and his family. I have a primary agent and an access agent called his wife uh, and their kids already awake. We knew it was coming. We knew we're, we're on, we're at like DEFCON 5. We're, we're ready. The buses pull up, the, the vans pull up, we get in those and we race. We race to one of our first rally points inside Kiev. While we're doing that, my case managers in America have already woken up the Americans they're ready to travel. They're already in route to a rally point to a safe site, which is an underground bunker thing that we found that was built during the Cold War. So it's very, very, very safe. And to another rally point, we come swooping up and we are screaming out of the city with Americans rescued, leaving the city with missiles flying over us, literally missiles flying over us within 60 minutes of the first missiles landing. And that was the first rescue of Americans Wow! within, within one hour. That's incredible. There's something I wanted to ask. I understand it, but I don't know if everybody listening understands this. When you say we've developed human infrastructure and other infrastructure, can you go in a little bit about what does that mean? Yeah. So, so human infrastructure in the world of rescue, there's a concept called NAR, non-conventional assistive recovery is a term of art. And what NAR is, is if you, the, the textbook example is like a down pilot. So a, a pilot, an American reconnaissance pilot is flying over Iran for whatever reason they have to eject. And now they're in Iran, which is a denied area. It's a bad place, right? You can't send in a SEAL team. You can't fly helicopters in because they won't make it. They're too far. You can't parachute guys in because how are they getting out? So what do you do? What do you, you know, what, how do you deal with that problem? Right, either the guy gets killed or he gets captured. But let's say, let's say there was an entire network of people and facilities pre-set up, sitting there, waiting, baking, sitting there for years and years and years. That's that's infrastructure. It's not just a, an intelligence source who can say, "Yep, I see the parachute. Yep, he's on his way down. I can confirm to you, you got a down bundle on the ground." Ah, that's not in the world of intelligence. We usually know that part, right? Because the, the beacons and the, all the electronic stuff and everything. The question is, is once he's on the ground, people, and it's not just one, people that start moving that down pilot around the battle space, that's, a, that's the network. So it's not just a guy with a taxi or a guy with a moped. It's a, it, it, it's a, it's a, Interwoven, multi-level network. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's an organism, right? Like a mouse trap. It's not just a guy who we happen to know that can go to the right place and put him in a car and drive. Doesn't work that way. When we say infrastructure, I mean all kinds of stuff: safe houses, bunkers, food, medical facilities. Right? We deal with this all the time at Dynamo. Our people are, are old or, or are babies where, you know, 
uh, logistics nodes and people who have been spotted, you know, who have been spotted, assessed, developed, and recruited for this purpose. Do they happen to be good intelligence forces too? Yeah, sure. They know that situational awareness is always a good thing. But their primary task is not to collect intelligence. I already know what I need to know. The war is bad. The Russians are killing everyone. And if you're American, they're going to arrest you or kill you. I already know. Maybe understanding the checkpoints and some other things can be beneficial, but that comes a little bit later. That comes a little bit after. Really, what when I say human and physical infrastructure, I mean people that have placement and access hundreds of miles behind enemy lines where nobody can go or get access to that are loyal and responsive to our operations that can do things, that can do things, not just see things, that will do things. That's the difference. And the physical architecture is the stuff, the planes, trains, automobiles, the safe houses, the medical sites, the logistics nodes, the height sites, all those places, communications nodes, all those different things that the human infrastructure needs to rely on in order for it to work. That's when I say human and physical infrastructure, that's what I mean. It's not just a source that I can pay and have him tell me things that I'm not supposed to know. It's a much different thing. That's human and physical infrastructure. So what we do, the best time to do that is before, just like Noah's Ark. The best time to build the boat is not when it's raining. That's the best time. That's the best time. And that's, that's exactly what we did, and it worked. The way we know it worked is because, number one, with a text message, our infrastructure came to life. It was hiding and then was energized and came to life. With buses, we, we had a safe house in a place called Chernipsy that was a uh, really, really, really nice hotel that we had co-opted from a Russian sympathizer. Right? Interesting, right? Everyone says, why would you partner with a Russian sympathizer? That's a violation of every counterintelligence concept known to be true. Well, if you think about it, not knowing what the war will be, and knowing that Russia has something called an air force, and knowing that they're going to bomb and do air, you know what I know they're not going to do? They're not going to bomb their friends. So if I have a hotel in a good spot close to the Romanian border that's managed by a guy that I know is a Russian sympathizer, and I know that he's in contact with the bad guys, and has probably said to his bad guy friends, hey, don't blow up my hotel, please, please, that may be better than, let's say, a hotel or so close to a military base that's going to be a prime target for the Russians Let's when, when trying to figure it out. Now, in fairness, you try and find a place that's completely benign, but it's very difficult. It's very difficult. And I tell you what, that safe house serviced, I don't know, 2,000 people. Not a scratch. Not a scratch. Now, I mean, how do you explain that? Well, you explain that because using this kind of methodology where I don't need intelligence out of this guy. What I need is I need him to be my friend, take care of people. I need beds with sheets and towels. I need it to be discreet. I need it to be in the middle of nowhere. I need him and his staff to not talk and not burn us. I need food. I need a medical capability, possibly. I need a place where we can hunker down and hold up for a day or two until we can figure out what we're gonna, what's going to happen. And that, that, that safe site serviced us for 
seven or eight months. It was a revolving door. Do is we'd get people from the occupied area. We would jump the border through, through using the network. And then from the border, from the, from the border of Ukraine, Russian occupied Ukraine and Ukraine to NATO is 31 hours on the road and you can't fly. So that's 31 hours through a war zone on, on top of getting you out of the occupied area, which is a whole nightmare. So when we got our people, when we got our people to what we call Club Dynamo, which was our, one of our bigger safe houses, and it was huge. It was a resort. It was a resort. It was so nice. It was so nice. People didn't want to leave. So good it was. It allowed us to take a knee, do a compass check, assess the border, figure out if there's any problems that we need to address, kind of get our stuff together, and then make our way to the Romanian border, to the Polish border, and then get the people to safety. Fantastic. Really interesting. I think for us, because we just do the intelligence part, we don't really do this part, which I find fascinating. But I understand also why that's different because you have to get people out and that's you know, the primary perspective. So what can you say maybe, and then even a more difficult one, Sudan, which you know I'm, we are involved in and uh, I know you guys are doing work there. What can you say about that and, and, and how difficult or was that pretty straightforward or how's that going? I, none of these, there's no such thing as a straightforward rescue, right? If it were, it'd be called tourism, right? Or, or, or vacation or something. Even in the, the easiest of cases, it's very difficult. And just to go back to infrastructure for one moment, make no mistake, we collect intelligence using our infrastructure as well. It's not that it's segregated. And the tradecraft that we use for our infrastructure is identical to what we use for, from a human perspective. It's the same stuff. Everything is the same. It's the end state that's a little bit different. Um, with respect to Sudan, Sudan, each one of these conflicts is different. Afghanistan, the threat of the Taliban and their perception of Americans and this kind of thing is different than in the occupied areas of Russia, or the occupied areas of Ukraine. We've actually done operations inside Russia in St. Petersburg, in the history of the United States and, Ru and the Russian relationship, never has anyone gone into Russia and taken people from Russia, taken Americans without trading something. Gary Powers, Brittany Griner, whoever, every single American that's ever come out of Russia was traded for something or someone. Dynamo is the only organization to conduct operations inside, St. Peter inside Russia, Russia, not Russian-occupied Ukraine and succeed. With respect to Sudan, Sudan is complicated because the government of Sudan has not, and this is weeks ago now, uh, we landed the first American charter plane, the, the first and only American charter plane in Sudan for Americans. The war, we're watching it on TV, the State Department again telegraphs their moves smartly and says, we are, we are you know, Americans need to leave. We're going to evacuate the embassy. Time to go. I, I, as much as that bothers me that they say that, I appreciate their transparency because they didn't do that for Afghanistan. And if we, if we go back to Afghanistan, the State Department never said, hey, everyone, time to go. They never said that. They said, we're going to do an evacuation, get to Kabul. They left out the part of, we're going to leave you there on your own devices. They never said that. In Ukraine, they, they telegraphed it. And in Sudan, they telegraphed it again. So I appreciate that. So embassy gets evacuated. We had searched forward. 
we went, uh, we searched forward to Egypt, which is the northern country and friendliest country to Sudan. What's interesting, it is a civil war, right? So civil war is always the worst kind of war to have. Civil war in Africa is, you know, historically the recipe of genocide, lest we not forget Darfur and, and, uh, and the genocide that happened with the Janjaweed and everything in Sudan and South Sudan, right? So pretty terrible. And, you know, we kind of went into it not knowing what will happen. So you have two sides, two sides, both of which are highly organized, both of which are pretty equivalent as far as experience goes, the RSF and the Sudanese Armed Forces, led by very capable leaders, both of them, they have good leadership. This isn't militia, where they're led by a guy who used to sell, you know, sell hubcaps, and now he's a general. Both sides are, are, are pretty capable sides, and both sides have a tremendous amount of foreign influence. That's the difference. Both sides, the RSF is fully backed by Wagner and a whole bunch of other bad guys, and the Sudanese, the Sudanese armed forces, more or less, are backed by us, although they're really not, uh, to, a lesser degree, to a larger degree, Egypt, and to a lesser degree, UAE. So both sides have tremendous foreign influence in an environment that is historically war-torn and struggles with a tremendous amount of natural resources. That's why everyone fights over it in the first place. In Africa, the big tagline is everyone wants a piece of Sudan, right? Haftar and Libya wants a part of Sudan. The Egyptians want Sudan. The Ethiopians want Sudan. The Russians want Sudan. The Chinese want Sudan. Everyone wants a piece of Sudan. It's a pretty terrible set of circumstances because it's a very rich in natural resources and it's a pretty terrible place. That's how, this, that's how it starts. Now, the Sudanese government is not a failed government, meaning the, the Sudanese Joint Chiefs of Staff are still coming to work every single day. Even though it's a civil war, the, the government is still very functional. They're, the, Sudanese, the Sudanese embassies across the world are staffed and filled with people, unlike Afghanistan, right? If you compare and contrast to Afghanistan, the, the regular government went away, the Taliban came in control, and now you have Taliban ambassadors in Washington, D.C. And this is not that. This is not that. So it made it beneficial from that perspective because at that point, it's all about understanding who is, who's who in the zoo in the Sudanese government that we can work with. And then again, set up infrastructure, develop some sources, develop some safe sites, and figure out how we're going to peel the banana. The concentration of Americans in particular are in Khartoum. So we start setting conditions to do things at a Wadi Saida, which is a, a military base very close to Khartoum. We actually had some aircraft in Khartoum at the airport, but then the airport got shut down, so that was that. Uh, we never used those airplanes. Our original idea was to do the ground movement piece from throughout Sudan to Wadi Saina, where the U.S. Air Force would surely be evacuating Americans. We came to that conclusion because every other country was using Wadi Saina, and that made sense. The British, the Moroccans, the Egyptians, the Guatemalans, the Spanish, the, uh, the Dutch, the Germans, the Swedish, whoever. There's one problem. America never sent airplanes. 29 countries landed in airplanes inside of, inside of Sudan to rescue their people. The United States is not, is not one of them. And if you can answer that question as to why, you're a smarter guy than me. But 
nobody, it, it, to the extent, it was such a strange scenario to the extent that the Sudanese came to us and asked us as friends, for lack of better terms, to find out why America is mad at the Sudanese government. And my response was, I'm not, a, I'm not aware that they are. I don't, I'm, they, and my counterparts would say, well, they must be. They must be because they're not asking for landing clearance the way you're asking for landing clearance. They must be mad at us. Of course, we want to say yes. Tell them all they got to do is ask and we'll say yes. No problem. We want, we, the RSF is fighting us. They're backed by Russia. We want, we need to do favors for America. It is in our interest to say yes to the Americans. But for some reason, they're not asking us for this, and every other country is. Therefore, we conclude that the Americans must be angry at it. And it's a very logical, lucid thought. Very, makes perfect sense. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very ironic because they let the Russians even land and take their people out. They were saying the, the, the Sudanese government, their perspective is, is they want to be perceived as good and honorable and legitimate and show that the RSF is bad. Therefore, they're all about helping out any country's civilians. Any country. They landed, the Chinese landed. At 29 countries landed aircraft in the first two weeks, three weeks of that conflict. And the United States is not one of them. The United States flew in helicopters with special operations forces. They sent 100 men, pulled out 91 embassy staff, and that was the end. And the question is, 16,000 Americans of various shapes and sizes living in Sudan, what happens to them? Because now there's no embassy, and now they're stuck in the middle of a war. Ostensibly, the Air Force should land a C-17 or land a C-130 or charter a plane or do whatever and pull Americans out. They elected not to do that. And that's where Dynamo said, okay, well, then we'll land an airplane because I can get landing clear. They, it was a little bit of a challenge. It was a little hard because we're coming, we're, we're coming at it kind of late, late in the game because I never thought that we would really need to. We didn't, we didn't really go down that path because I simply assumed, mistakenly again, that, that we would show up. It's one thing to say, well, we're not going to go into Afghanistan because we just left and Taliban is politically not going great. The optics of that, all that, okay, I get that. And okay, we're not going to send SEALs into Ukraine to go rescue Americans because that can be perceived as escalatory. We don't want to do that. So, you know, it pains us to say, but we're not going to do that. Over to you, Dynamo. Sudan, I don't understand. I don't understand that at all. Uh, that makes no sense to me. That, that, that doesn't, uh, I, I'll never yeah, understand. Yeah, fascinating. We have, so, yeah, we have a client actually that, that reached out to us because one of his colleagues, wife and kids, Americans, were, were stuck. Uh, this is a couple of weeks ago. And they got out through the British. They got on a British plane, so that was interesting. What I wanted to ask you, because you said something very fascinating about, you know, preparing before the flood. So how do you guys now, as you go on, and I hope you guys will go on, how do you identify and prepare for the next one, right? Yeah. So there's a few things 
so number one, obviously China and Taiwan, right? Which in from a from a planning perspective, I look at those as two separate things. Meaning the way we evacuate people out of Taiwan being bombed by the Chinese, let's say, is different than how we get people who are expats in China who are who now are trapped because of the diplomatic situation once that all happens, right? So how do we do that? Understanding what we think Taiwan will be from a kinetic perspective, from the Chinese perspective, right? Do I think China is going to flatten half of Taiwan the way Russia flattened half of Ukraine? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. But we know we know some things to be true. We know certainly there'll be a naval blockade. We know this. We know there'll probably be closed skies. We know this. We know that it's an island. So somehow we can't walk and drive off the island. So from a mechanism perspective, there's some work that we have to do in that regard. But it's, it really comes down to understanding how the Chinese are going to manage their invasion of Taiwan. And then where do we, and the, and the last part is, where do we go, right? The Chinese have, have been very public and they've said, whoever helps out, you know, if somebody gets involved in this, in re, what they call reunification, if someone gets involved in re, reunification, you'll be on the target list. The Japanese are very afraid of this, right? So it's not like I can fly a plane from Taipei and land in Tokyo and be unnoticed by the Chinese. That's not going to work. Uh, how we're going to do it, I don't want to get into that, but we have, we have some very, 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 very good ideas. But the reality is, is just like the war in Ukraine, we won't really know if those ideas are, have teeth until it starts. It, it's, hard to, it's hard to test. It's hard to test. So, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things. Our number one problem with respect to China and Taiwan is funding. That is our number one for sure problem is we are, we are entirely donor funded. We are entirely donor funded and donations have trickled down to basically nothing. And the time to build infrastructure is not in the middle of a crisis. And it is expensive. Planes and trains and helicopters, boats and all kinds of stuff are, are expensive. So that, you know, that, that's the issue with this stuff. And the government has the same problem. The government has the same problem. We're in fiscal crisis. There's a recession. There's inflation. There's all these crazy things. And the economy is messed up all over the world. How many billions of dollars do you invest in clandestine infrastructure in Asia right now for a thing that may not ever happen? And if it does, your infrastructure may be in the wrong place, which is terrible. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Interesting. And this is something that and I'm interested in, particularly from an intelligence perspective. So obviously China, Taiwan is, is the ele- is the elephant in the room, but do you guys or have you guys thought about or are you already doing this where you look at do you have a set of, let's say, indicators of warning that you put over the globe and say, Hey, this is what we're tracking, or these are the top ten countries that we're tracking and is that capability there? Are you guys thinking about that? Yeah. So, you know, next ridge line is things like China and Taiwan. But there's a, there's a bunch of countries where there's no, uh, where there's no uh, U.S. government presence, where there's problems. Iran, Venezuela, Cuba, 
uh, North Korea, uh, a couple of other places where it's Americans are unlawfully detained. Uh, Russia, right? Where we're actively engaged in many cases where the Plowalen, uh, uh, to a lesser degree, we're, we're tangentially involved in Brittany Griner too. So you know, our, our mission is very simple. The mission of Project Dynamo is very, very, very simple. We operate, we, we call it the gray space, which is kind of funny given the podcast, right? We, we, we could, it's actually on our coin. Let me see if I can show this to you. Our coin, that's our challenge coin, right? The gray space. So what is, no, send me, uh, email me your address, send me one. We, uh, you know, we conduct rescue operations of American citizens and allies where the U.S. government is not present or does not have access. So if, if there's an American that's in trouble in Sweden, we probably don't go there. Because there's an embassy, there's a diplomatic presence, we have very good relations, no problem. You know, if an American gets in trouble in Gothenburg, Sweden, probably not for us. Probably not. But in a, in a place like Russia, let's say, where the diplomatic relationship is so poor that, yeah, we have an embassy, but it may as well not even be there, frankly. Or in a place like Afghanistan, where we left and we're never coming back. Or in a place like Ukraine, where we've left and we're not going to. Or even in things like Hurricane Ian. Uh, Hurricane Ian in Florida. We were first in the water during Hurricane Ian in Florida. It was a big hurricane that came through, flattened half of South Florida. I was home from Ukraine. I had just come home from Ukraine to do my taxes. And the hurricane was supposed to hit Tampa. It didn't. It hit three hours south. We got, we got our trucks together, got boats together, put my crew together. We got on the road, and we were in the water conducting rescue operations before the United States Coast Guard. We, before everybody. So it's now once those resources show up, we left. I don't, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a government replacement. That's not what we're here for. Yeah, I'm, not, or I'm not competitive with the government. We exist where they're not. So if there's an American that gets in trouble in, let's say, Syria or Iraq, or Yemen, uh, we have a we have a really fat, we have a couple of fascinating cases in Yemen of some pretty bad things going on. Those kinds of places, which are not war zones per, per se, but they're places where the government doesn't, the U.S. government doesn't have access or easy access. Then we 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 swim in those ponds also. So we have a whole bunch of those that are present. Then next ridgeline things like China and Taiwan. But once I start hearing about there's civil strife or there's a war or there's a this or there's a that. We start to pay attention. And through our friends and colleagues in the, in the State Department, if they start saying, hey, look, man, we're getting ready to leave. This is, this is going from bad to worse. We're evacuating from Khartoum. Heads up. That's when we start to pack our bags. Once the U.S. Embassy starts to say that they're going to leave is when we start to pack and start to travel. And we, we call that that battle space, the gray space, because it's, what is that called? You know, is it a denied area? Man, that denied area, I can go. You know, North Korea is a denied area. Um, uh, you know, I can go, I can get a visa, I have a visa to Sudan. Is it a denied area? No. The government could be there, but they're not. People are there and they don't want to be. So what do we call that? We call that the gray space. Yeah. No, yeah, I mean, it's very, very similar philosophy. What I call my company Great Dynamics, but there's places, for example, like uh, Senegal, where there is, you know, civil unrest right now. Not to the extent that you know there will be evacuations needed, but 
a country that we are looking at, for example, is Burkina Faso, which is, you know, teetering, or Mali, where the Westerners kind of already left or, or are on their way out. So that's, yeah, very interesting, very fascinating. What I wanted to ask you, so, sorry, go ahead. But so, so Burkina Faso is very interesting. We just did an operation called Coffee Bean. Coffee Bean is a, uh, is a family. It's an American woman who is an art teacher. Who is, who is an art teacher in Khartoum. She married a guy from Burkina Faso who has a U.S. visa and has an adopted son who is also from Burkina Faso. She got stuck in between Sudan and Egypt. She was out of Sudan, but Egypt wouldn't let her in because she's in the middle diplomatically. She was there for six days and six nights without food and water. Her son, who was six or seven years old, was being eaten alive by a rat. And it's a pretty terrible story. She was on a direct threat of sexual... Yeah, really bad. She's in direct threat of, of sexual assault at the border, right? Because it's a terrible place. And all kinds of bad things are happening. And this is the first week of the war in Sudan. So everything's very new and ugly. We could not use the U.S. government. The U.S. government declined to intercede on her behalf. Because her husband is not American and neither is her son by passport. However, comma, if, they, if she would have filled out the application, they would have been. So kind of silly. But this happens. People don't do paperwork and they should. The only logical place to bring her to is Burkina Faso, which is where she is now. So we went from a civil war in Sudan to a soon-to-be failed state in Burkina Faso. And now she's stuck, now she's stuck there. So... Sometimes I bring that operation up, coffee bean. I bring that up to say that when we do these things, there's the hot zone, the warm zone, cold zone. But it can be incredibly frustrating when you can't go from the hot zone to the cold zone. You kind of have to exist in the warm zone. And that warm zone quickly become the hot zone or another hot zone, which is what I predict for Burkina Faso. Yeah. 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 That would be with you on that one. All right. So for you right now, I mean, we're going to put all the stuff, uh, the information of Project Dynamo in the show notes and everything, and we're going to push that out. In this podcast, we always ask at the end of it, is there, because there's a lot of people that are interested in, you know, your your past work and want to get into that line of work or what you're doing right now. So what advice would you give to a young person or not so young, from your experience and, and what you're doing now? Ooh, there's a lot of <laughs> advice. Number one, uh, don't do drugs. Don't do drugs. <laughs> Stay in school, get good grades. The big thing that I tell people is, I get asked, you know, what language should I learn? Right, I get that all the time. I tell people, only learn a language that you can master. It does you not much, a little bit of benefit, but if, if you have the same Mandarin capability of a two-year-old, I don't know that the, that the, you know, it, it's like when I travel, what I do is I have a list of 20 or 30 phrases. Please, hello, thank you. Where's the bathroom? Don't shoot. Uh, you know, uh, help me. Right. And before I travel, I always kind of try and memorize as many of those as I can of whatever language, whatever the language is of where I'm going to. And I always have a printout. I always have a printout of that with me in the language. Right, so like, a, like just a, a pocket translator, 
that way, if Google Translate isn't working, and I love Google Translate, but if Google Translate isn't working, I have something I can point to. So I have things like that. And the biggest advice that I give people is always, always be polite. It is really, really easy to become a jerk. But once you're assessed to be a jerk, it's really hard to recover from that. I, it's amazing how far you can get in places by being polite and almost a little goofy, uh, just a little goofy, right? So if, you, if you're one of these guys that, you know, I'm a former infantry Marine and you walk around and I just want to project strength, well, that's how people kick your ass. That makes people want to punch you in the face, especially overseas. I'm overweight. I'm gray. I'm old. If you look at me, I'm not a threat to anybody. Nobody looks at me and is afraid of anything. And being being disarming, being disarming is is a is a really, really, really good way to to get really far in a lot of these crazy places. And it is an art to be disarming. It, it is not, and it's it's very difficult for Americans to be disarming. Americans are loud and obnoxious and all those things. It's it's sometimes not in our nature, at least in, in the West and, in, and uh, certainly not in England, you know, the Five Eyes community, to be not strong. So there's a, there's a difference between pretending to be compliant and actually being compliant, right? I, I, you know, I have this thing, I, when I teach this stuff, I call it the Jeepers Creepers defense, right? Jeepers Creepers, right? So you get in trouble, you get in trouble by whoever and they're accusing, you know, they're, they're saying, well, it says right here, you know, we have a picture of this or whatever it is. And it's amazing how if you go, well, Jeepers Creepers, officer, I just, I have no idea what you're talking about. Jeepers Creepers. I'm just a, I'm just a dumb American. I turned left. I thought I was lost. Now I'm found. Here I am. It's amazing how you can embrace some stupidity as weakness that will get you far. And I think practicing that, learning how to be, or learning how to project weakness and being disarming can be very, very, very beneficial if you're working, especially if you're working by yourself. That's probably the single most beneficial piece of advice that anybody has given on this podcast, really. The last part where you said, you know, being a bit goofy and, you know, how disarming that is. And, and, and you know, and I think... Because people travel all the time, they don't have to be doing any dangerous work, but but traveling anywhere, it can really help out to be disarming. And yeah, that's that's really that's really good advice. And I think that's somebody that anybody can do. Yeah, I, I think, you know, in the in, in America, I think a lot of people struggle with that, especially in the military community, you know, where we're designed to be aggressive and fighters, you know, blah, 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 blah. And that's okay. That's okay when you're backed up by F sixteens. But when you're on the street by yourself in Adidas and all you have is your wits and what's in your pockets, acting aggressive is a great way to get punched in the face. So, so I, think, I think those things, and then I have rules, things that, that I never ever, from a, from a street perspective, that I never violate. You know, like I, I always wear shoes with laces. Always. You'll, you will never see me in public in a pair of flip-flops. Ever, 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 ever. Unless I'm on a beach. And in that case, I wear shoes and I carry my flip flops from at the beach, because I can't run because I can't run in flip flops, right? I keep copies of my passport. I keep multiple laminated copies of, of my passport uh, in different places on my body. I always have cash on me. 
always have cash. I'm always assuming that I, 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 when I do things, every single thing that I do, doesn't matter what, whoever I'm talking to, wherever I'm going, if I go into a restaurant, everything, I have a reason as to why I'm, even if it's, I, I assume that at any moment, some local security service guy is going to grab me up and say, hey, you, who are you? What are you doing here? Where are you from? And give me 20 questions. And I like that. I, I have I, everything I do, I have those answers. And I think about them very methodically. When I pull up to a meeting, before I get out of the car, I think to myself, if I'm asked, where did I come from? Where am I going? And that way, if I get, if I get in trouble, because I was walking around like an angry American, let's say, I have really good, thoughtful answers, and very often I'll practice my answers so that the first time I'm giving those answers, my, the muscles of my face have actually done this once already, right? So, so it's not, you know, because when, when you're under duress, it's very easy to see when someone's thinking, right, and creating. I don't want to be creative. I want to use the analytical side of my brain because that's what law enforcement is looking for. They're looking to see if I'm creating, you know, you have someone, a question, and the answer somehow is on the roof, somehow. Somehow, everyone looks at the ceiling when they're locked, right? And, and if they're not doing that, they're looking down. Well, the answer isn't on the ceiling or the floor. Why are you, you know? So I, so I, do, I do things like that to practice. But, to, you know, from a, from a training perspective, the thing I tell everybody is learn as much as you can about as many different things as possible. It doesn't matter what. You would not believe what I know as a career intel guy about textiles, about how to make clothes, how to make t-shirts, how to make patches. has nothing to do with anything. But I can have a really intelligent conversation with any textile manufacturer anywhere in the world and hold my own. Am I an expert? No, but I'll keep up in that conversation. I will. Well, guess where most textiles are made? In countries that are problem countries. China, Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand. You know, you don't have a lot of textiles made in Sweden. Right? Not many, right? Not many. You see? So, so I, I tell everyone, be, be a sponge of knowledge. I try to learn something new every single day. And, um, you know, technology is great. Technology is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful tool, but it is a tool that, you know, if you imagine, I look at technology like a carpenter. You have a carpenter who can build a bookcase and he's got a, a plane and he's got a chisel and he's got a saw and he's got all those things. None of those things make the bookcase. His brain makes the bookcase. No matter what we do, right? No matter what happens, at the end of the day, the chisel is not going to chisel itself. The carpenter chisels and knows how much pressure to apply and how much to take off and how to level it and how to use all these other things. That's very much how we need to think about technology from a tradecraft perspective. Because what happens is, as soon as you become the lack of something, it's not available to you. The moment you become beholden on GPS is the moment that GPS gets turned off. And if you don't know how to use a map, you're in deep kimchi. And now you're a guy with all these wonderful skills that has no idea where he is. 
And that's pretty terrible. Yeah. That's pretty terrible. Oh, you're so right. I mean, um, the best example that I, that I can give is that I had to write a letter and my computer didn't work anymore and there, because there was no power. It was a, uh, a rolling power out chart. And I had to write it by hand, right? I was like, yeah, I don't have spelling check, you know? <laughs> so you have to, you have to think about these things that you don't have them. And then when you don't have them, it's like, oh, wait a second. You know, normally I rely on the spell check or, you know what I mean? These type of very benign things, but that when you don't have them, all of hey. a sudden everything changes. You know, again, I, I, I love technology. I, you know, I'm really getting really into chat GPT and, you, you know, all these great things. These are great tools and they're awesome. And it's, you know, I'm happy that I lived this long to have all these wonderful benefits. However, however, sometimes those benefits aren't here. And if you don't have the foundational knowledge, it doesn't help, you, you know, and you can find yourself in a memory. Card, and it's happened to me. And it's definitely happened to me. Uh, we saw a lot of this in, in, in Russian occupied Ukraine, where in the, in the South, cell phone providers were switching and towers were being blown up and they were up and down and power would come and go. And sometimes radios would work and sometimes only cell phones would work, but no data. So you can make a cellular call, but you couldn't send a text message and all kinds of things. So, uh, uh, you know, being, being able to, the more diverse you are, the more you're able to handle challenges that you can't predict. And that is what, that is what the, the current threat is all about. Who knows? You know, everyone lives on WhatsApp. Everyone lives on Signal. Everyone uses VPN. Well, guess what? VPN, Signal, and WhatsApp don't work in China. They don't work. So if I'm going to recruit an asset digitally in China, then all the tools that I live on every single day don't work. Well, how? Well, then, then what? Then what? Can I get WeChat in America? No. If you do that, you get pinged by the... Then the Chinese know that you're Americans. That kind of stinks. And the FBI comes knocking on your doors. That stinks even more. So you can't do that. So how, how, you know, how do you peel that banana? Do I use a subsource somewhere else? You know, but think, thinking through, thinking through how we're going to deal with any number of challenges is, is really important. And I tell people, don't get wrapped around the... The other thing I tell people is you are going to make mistakes period, you will. I, I have come so close to getting myself killed because I'm stupid, not because of the enemy, because of turn left and I should have turned right and I should have known to turn left, all kinds of stuff. So when those things happen, the number one thing to do is to learn. Learn, learn, and don't make that mistake twice. First time, shame on them. Second time, shame on you. You know? And um, people ask me all the time, what should they make? What should they study in college? In America, I want to join an agency. I want to become a human guy. I want to do this. What should I study in college? I tell everybody, English. Having proper command of the English language is so important. If you're an intelligence officer, you could be, you, you could be James Bond and 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 have eyes on Osama bin in Abbottabad in you know five years earlier, and there you are, and it's totally him before he was killed in 2011. It's totally him. And you write up your, your intelligence report and you push send. If it's written like a three-year-old, the analyst who is the one who actually reads your stuff 
is going to not give you credibility because you don't know how to write. And your wonderful intel that could change the world is valued poorly based on your poor command of the English language, not based on the intelligence that you collected, based on your ability to convey that to a decision maker, which is what the intelligence community is all about. We don't actually make decisions. We're on the straight, you know, going to dinner all the time and working in bars and restaurants. You know, the decision makers will make a decision based on the credibility, based on your credibility. If you don't know how to write and you can't articulate your observations as an intelligence professional, you can have the best intelligence in the world. No one's going to listen to you. Yeah, that's no one's going to listen. That is so true. I mean, I think the number one complaint intelligence managers or leadership tells me about is that they're frustrated with the writing of their analysts or, or the reports they get. Number one. That's the number one complaint. So it, it, uh, you, you hit the nail on the head right there. Um, last question that I have for you, because I don't want to keep you too long. Any cultural recommendation? What are you watching? What are you reading? What are you listening to right now? I don't really watch the news a whole lot. If I watch the news, any, any mainstream media, I'm reading between the tea leaves. I don't believe much of it. You know, best example, right now there's hundreds of Americans stuck in Sudan, right? Hundreds of Americans, hundreds of Americans. Try and find the word Sudan on foxnews.com, uh, cnn.com, or bbc.com. You won't find, you won't even find a reference to it. That doesn't mean it's not a problem. It means that it's, no one cares about it, but that doesn't mean that there's not a problem. You know, I, I, I exist in a lot of chat rooms. Uh, I read a lot of stuff, but I, I take, I'm a big primary intel guy. I take my cues from people who, who, who don't have a reason to misinform, if you will. You know, so, you know, when I look at mainstream media today as entertainment, they're trying to you know, click, click bait and stuff. Uh, but I, I, you know, when, when I, re- yeah, I, 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 you, you can't fault them for it. It kind of is what it is. So, you know, if I need to know about a particular topic as a, as a, as a career humanter, you know, when in doubt, recruit an asset is what I always say. So if I'm curious about what's going on in Gothenburg, Sweden, I'll find someone who I know who knows someone in Gothenburg, Sweden, and spot assess developer recruit them and get set to mint from the ground. And then in that process, understand what the antonym of them would be. Whoever the, whoever they're, you know, so if I was, if I was trying to find a Republican in America, I would talk to someone who knows Republicans in America, make friends with a Republican, and then, and then learn what a Democrat is, and then go and find a Democrat and try and get at least two perspectives that are competing with each other. And probably neither one of them are speaking accurately about the other one, but at least that way I can get two very different perspectives. And I think understanding the perspectives is the most important thing. And when I'm hanging out with Republicans, you won't believe I'm a Republican I am. And when I'm hanging out with Democrats, you won't believe how Democrat I am. Because the reality is uh, you need to be everything. You need to understand the difference between, we learn this in interrogation. A lot of people look at interrogation in schools from the law enforcement model. Law enforcement interrogation is, is getting your subject to admit guilt, a confession. Intelligence interrogation is about seeking the truth, whatever that truth may be. doesn't have to be good news, doesn't have to be bad news, doesn't even have to be news, but it needs to be accurate. 
It needs to be accurate. And that's very much how I kind of see things. And generally speaking, people are more interested in playing gotcha to to defend their cause or their perspective or explain to you why everyone else is wrong. And I think, you know, the intelligence business, you need to be sensitive, you know, uh, to, to that. So I, I spent a lot of time talking to, to extremes on both sides and then that helps inform the middle mm. what I do. Absolutely. That's very interesting. Thank you so much, uh, Brian. I, I, I felt like even myself, I learned a lot and <laughs> I will, uh, I'll definitely, I hope we can talk after this more because uh, I feel like uh, we've only scratched the surface. Thank you so much for, for being on and uh, and sharing your story and, and your interesting work. I will add all of your stuff in the, in, the, in the show notes and for everybody listening. Guys, if you made it this far, thank you so much for supporting and listening and please support Project Dynamo. They're doing amazing work, as you can hear, and I think they, they, they really need your support. So please go for it. And you don't have to be even an American, I think, to, to uh, donate, right? We've actually, we've rest, Project Dynamo has rescued people from 20 different nationalities. There you go. Right. There you go. So, so and we have Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn and all that. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if someone yeah. does that, but like us. We will share. Us. Yeah. We will we share. Have, we, we punch Russia in the face on social media all yeah. the time. So, it, you know, makes. Uh, yeah. No, we will uh, we will definitely share everything and um, and then people. Uh, I mean, you have our support, so that's that's definitely uh, for sure. And everybody, you know, like, share, support, uh, give us feedback, what you think, and uh, and uh, you can reach out to to Brian to one of his channels that we're gonna share that he's okay with sharing. Um, thank you guys, and thank you, Brian. Thank you.